This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, it's left to me to wrap up before, but we're not really wrapping up. We're wrapping up before a question and answer session that Isabel will start to lead in a second, but I do get to wrap up. It's kind of, you know, I'm thinking and saying, what, what can I do to wrap up after uh, some of these talks, which are extraordinary, right? And, uh, um, you know, I just was thinking of a few things. Um, one of them is, uh, you know, we talk about uh, genetic variation and how it, how it contributes, and we see that there's this notion of a normal distribution and this idea that, you know, you can have very, very rare extreme abilities due to kind of common genetic variation. At the same time, we have very rare syndromes in which... Like, like Williams syndrome and some of the other things that we heard about, like KE family, very rare genetic mutations, that instead of being an additive of thousands of variation that's coming through the population, that kind of lightning hits, and, it caught, you know, and that gives us insight. And so kind of as physicians, scientists, and as, um, you know, who are curious about these, uh, you know, when we see this, both of those kind of provide us with extraordinary um, ability or, you know, potential to get insight. So, um, you know, I thought that's an important kind of point to bring out, that, you know, the study of rare may be a rare genetic mutation, but it may be rare because of common, common variation as well, and both are, you know, kind of provide us with exceptional insights, as I hope you heard from the many talks today. Really, a lot of food for thought, and I'm really looking forward to your questions. But first, I wanted to thank all the speakers, uh, number one, for sticking to time, which is very, very hard uh, when you want to talk about your work and stuff, uh, <laughs> you know, your baby. Um, really, um, everybody stuck to time and gave an incredibly cogent, beautiful, beautiful talk. So I, I want to thank everybody for their talk. And now I'm looking forward to um, a good bit of beautiful and very tough questions, I'm sure. Yeah. So I have uh, questions for, a lot of questions for Margot on the memory effect. And maybe I'll ask Jamie Ward to come and discuss with him answers to those questions. But I'll, I'll start first by, for, okay. I have two questions for Karen Berman. Well, I have two questions. Maybe it's better that you read them. Oh, okay, okay, I'll do it. Were William's patient recognized before genetics started? So that's a very good question. Uh, indeed, they were recognized, but not as such. Uh, I forget the year, but in, uh, decades ago, Williams and Baran, whose name I always mispronounce, uh, uh, characterized a syndrome that was uh, typified by infantile hypercalcemia, failure to thrive, and elfin faces. And in fact, when I was in medical school, uh, I won't tell you how long ago that was, but a long time ago, that's what we had called it, was elfin syndrome. The genetic cause of this disorder was discovered in the 90s uh, by my colleague Colleen Morris. So it's, it's been a very interesting evolution. Since that time, physicians 
uh, sort of index of suspicion, their ability to pick up uh, if there was a failure to thrive or a particular facial construct in babies and uh, small children has increased, and there's an, uh, a, a much greater recognition now uh, and, of course, a great interest in, in neurobiology and behavior. Uh, related questions, very related, is can you encounter cases where you cannot check that it is a genetic defect, but it is idiopathic kind of form of uh, Williams syndrome, like you can find in autism, for example? That's not my question. Eh? I'm gonna I'm gonna try to address that. Um, so Williams syndrome is pretty specific and and does depend at least these days on the genetic underpinnings. I will uh, mention this is a little bit of a tangent, but um, uh, in my slide I didn't emphasize this. But 96 more than 96 percent of people with autism have uh, almost the exact same deletion in on chromosome 7 and this is highly unusual that it's so stereotyped and this is because of uh, what I explained the, t the flanking regions be having very similar uh, sequences of DNA and sort of getting mixed up um, however there are very rare people who have smaller deletions in that same uh, portion of chromosome 7 and they have only pieces of the Williams syndrome uh, clinical phenotype. For example, people who just have a couple of genes uh, deleted called elastin and LIMK1 have the spatial problems, but not the personality problems. So these very rare folks, and we've now brought to the NIH for study uh, five families, five kindreds, and uh, seven singleton children who have these small deletions, and we hope that that will uh, enable us to um, sort of dissect the genes that are involved in a, a more specific way. My point in bringing this up is that the people who have these just several genes deleted are not picked up uh, because they have the behavioral phenotype at all. They're actually picked up because they have a cardiac problem because one of the genes that's hemi-deleted is elastin, which forms the walls of our arteries. So they have a, they have a, a cardiovascular uh, problem, and they're picked up. And, th and it's only apparent that they have the visuospatial construct problem uh, when they're tested, but they'll tell you if you talk to them, you know, gee, I had problems in this area uh, in school. I wasn't very good in geometry uh, and, and other things like that. So the short answer is no. I don't think that we pick up people uh, who have idiopathic Williams syndrome because it is, by definition, uh, a genetic disorder now that we know about it, and it is related to the first question. So thank you, Karen. And now Simon Fisher, I have an interesting question for you, an easy one, I think. Okay. Um, you, can hmm? you can answer it. Easy. <laughs> no, I would leave it to you. <laughs> what does a Fox P2 mutation do to a songbird? Ah, oh, okay. That's good. That's great because I got a whole. There's a whole talk on that which I didn't do. Um, so uh, we we don't know. Um, we can't actually knock out FOXP2 in, in songbirds because 
there's no, well, the, not, we don't yet have the technology to knock it out completely from embryos of songbirds, although that's coming. Um, but people have been able to use viruses to uh, manipulate the levels of uh, FOXP2 protein that the gene makes in certain parts of the brain. And um, people have studied uh, uh, one particular songbird, which is the zebra finch. So male, uh, young male zebra finches, they hear a song sung by uh, an adult male tutor, and they, they learn to make a, a, a pretty accurate copy of that. Um, and they're not the prettiest songs in the world, zebra, zebra finch songs, but um, they have a certain level of complexity and, and uh, different syllable types and different structures. Um, and the males sing to the females, and it's a learned thing. They have to be exposed to a template in, in, uh, when, they're, uh, uh, when they're young. And uh, lots is known about the neurobiology of how these zebra finch males are able to, to learn these songs. Um, and they have particular parts of the brain, uh, particular um, uh, kind of nuclei in the brain, uh, including uh, one in the striatum called area X, um, that are important for this learning process. Uh, and so re some researchers in Berlin, uh, led by uh, uh, Constance Scharf, uh, noticed that the levels of FOXP2 protein that were being made uh, in Area X were going up around the developmental time when the birds are learning their songs. So they, uh, they interfered with uh, using these viruses. They injected viruses into Area X of uh, young uh, um, uh, birds learning these songs and they knocked down the amount of FOXP2 that was being made and they found that the songs uh, were then not copied as accurately uh, uh, as, as uh, the control birds who had, it, had the gene knocked down in a different place or, or ones that had a kind of uh, dummy knockdown. Um, and there's lots more work that's been done on that but it's interesting to see that, that this is something that uh, this kind of auditory guided vocal learning, the need to listen to something and then uh, and, and reproduce a copy of it can be interfered with in a, in a songbird with FOXP2 knockdown. Several questions for uh, James Mago, and I think it would be more fun to ask also Jamie Ward to come up soon. <laughs> soon. <laughs> Let's first uh, ask. I mean, there are so many questions. I, I don't know where to start. Okay. Um, Okay, maybe the, the first one. What are the downsides of being, you know, uh, such a HSAM? In short, what, you know, did uh, evolution ensure we all uh, have that opportunity? What's the downside? Yeah, well, first. The um, one first obvious downside is illustrated by the very first sub subject who came to me. She contacted me because she is plagued by her strong, bad memories. She has awful memories. As a matter of fact, I, don't, I doubt that her experiences in life are much worse than those that most of us have. But she remembers every one of them, and so she dwells on them. I think that she contacted me initially because she had some kind of an idea that if she could contact me, that they would go away or that I would do something. Um, she kept diaries. She didn't keep diaries for the reason that most people do. They keep diaries because they want to cherish the wonderful things in their lives. Her idea was that if she wrote it down in her diary, that it would go away. 
That was a plan on her on her part. So that's that's the downsize. Um, for other people who have this ability, um, uh, I don't see a, a downsize. Uh, Louise Owen, the professional violinist, has a wonderful life, and she's not plagued. She's rather pleased that she can call up these experiences of the past. Uh, is this being filmed? Do you know? Yeah. It is. Oh. Let me simply say that it can sometimes make for difficult personal relationships if you remember and the spouse or the other does not. Maybe you've had that happen. <laughs> All right. um, and, okay, I, I can see it has an impact on the audience. No, 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 no. Okay, the next question is really related to something you have in common. Because, I mean, there are many questions, but the fact is, is it only for calendar or for dates that they have this kind of memory? Or do they learn better, you know, at school? No. Um, First of all, they they don't learn better at school. For the most part, they're quite average. And they don't learn better in the laboratory. They're quite average in... Uh, learning um, in the laboratory. Uh, but there are disadvantages, as I, I said. And in the laboratory, we've tried to teach them all kinds of things, and they really don't do any better at it than you and I do on the average. Um, so it's a special form of memory. It's a special form of memory, but there, there's a caveat in, in all of the work that we have done, and it's a very serious caveat, and that is we identify these people on the basis of us telling us days and dates. That's how we get them, and we have about 100 people who can do that out of a U.S. population of 330 million. We have had, as you probably saw in one of the slides, a large number of people who claim that they have this ability, but they don't. Now, they don't, maybe, maybe they don't, because they don't tag their memories with dates. And in order to be in our studies, they have to be able to tag their memories with dates. Now, we're caught in a trap. If they can't tell the, if we can't assess their memories with dates, how on earth are we going to validate them? You see, that's the problem. And so there may be a lot of those people who failed our test may have an ability like this, but they don't tag it with dates. And so that's a, a very big caveat, and we have tried to figure out how to deal with that. I, I, I get, even today, about two people a week. When this first opened up, I got on one day, I got 600 people who... <laughs> claim that they had uh, this ability. And, but most of them do not live uh, in Irvine. They live all, they, they, if they all lived in Irvine, we could solve a lot of problems, but they live, all, <laughs> they live all over the world, and we only bring the superstars to Irvine because it costs a lot of money to bring them up and put them for, up for a week while we're studying them. If we could figure out a way of assessing people who claim they have this ability but don't do dates, uh, we could learn more. Okay. So, thank you. All right. 
So I see that Jamie doesn't want no. to comment on this. Do you have your own perspective on the same kind of phenomenon? or? Not so much. I mean, I, I think I would agree with you that it strikes me that it's the date stamping thing that, that's interesting about them, and that's what made me wonder whether s some of them have synesthesia. I think Jill Price does, but whether it's a common trait. I, I guess, uh, well, you can't, if I asked you a question, do you think that they could tell you what date it's going to be, say, on the 3rd of June 2020? Could they do that? Because that's not a memory test, that's something about the calendar. You think they could do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that was kind of my hunch. So I, th I think a lot of the ability is around having the calendar as a kind of a tool. Just to mix it up a little bit, we do have a couple questions for Isabel, and she didn't want to ask herself the questions. And actually, a few of them actually appeared here. So there's a very common question, which is Chinese is a tonal language. And I guess the question is, is a general question. That is, do tonal languages... Um, there's this uh, you know, idea that, that uh, um, music ability and perfect pitch is increased in tonal languages uh, and uh, does so that's one question, is that an old wives tale or myth or whatever or, and then the other part of that is does amusia interfere with speech in, in learning tonal languages yes I mean, that's typically the good questions, of course, and typically I do address them, but I didn't have enough time. So for the first question, it makes so much sense to check if you can find cases of amusia in uh, populations who speak a tonal language. And when uh, we say tonal language, it's because they use pitch as a way to convey meaning. So it's very important for them to pick that up. And it is a little bit more fine-grained than what we use in everyday speech. Uh, in English and in French, the way we uh, manipulate prosody is much coarse, not fine-grained compared to uh, tonal languages. So to answer the first question, uh, it, and, uh, and the, the other aspect is really leading to the other question related to speech or intonation. So among uh, speakers of a tonal language, you do find the same prevalence of amusia. So it does not protect, to, to acquire a tonal language does not protect you from developing that neurogenetic uh, disorder. First, and it has been documented in many uh, different papers. We did it first, but uh, it has been replicated in different uh, countries and for different languages. Of course, if you manipulate pitch so that it is really, really fine-grained, like in certain tonal languages where pitch is really uh, subtly changed, then they do have a problem, uh, speci especially to identify the tones, but not to produce it. So again, we find a dissociation between uh, whatever it's related to awareness, uh, learning the code, and spontaneously using the code uh, in among speakers of tonal languages. So it is a very interesting avenue. Now related to speech. Of course, we checked intonation. And as I said, in English and in French, the way we use intonation in everyday life is rather a coarse use of pitch 
compared to what we do in music. In music, as I mentioned in my talk, it is really related to a semitone, to 100 cents, the, the two adjacent keys. That's the uh, a meaningful um, difference. And we do perceive uh, more than that, more refined than 100 cents. But in speech, when I'm asking, when I'm making a, a claim, for example, my pitch will go down by seven semitones. And if I'm asking a question or using a pitch accent, I'm using 12 semitones. So it's huge. And even if you have a poor system for uh, tracking pitch differences, you will pick those ones. So that's the reason they don't really have a problem with their speech, intonation, and prosody in everyday life. But if we do manipulate it, and we have done it, of course, in the lab by a few <coughs> semitones, then they do have a deficit. They do show a deficit. So it's not specific to music. It's just music relevant. Isabel, stay up here for a sec because we have a couple questions and we have some time. So have you found a correlation, can you hear me, between those with amusia and difficulty in learning mathematics? Okay, I have to be a little bit more specific here. I, I, I am interested by those co-occurrence now uh, more than in the past because uh, it's so similar uh, to the other learning disorders, specifically to dyslexia uh, and to prosopagnosia, the fact that people don't recognize faces and I'm affected. Um, so to, to go back to the questions, we... We studied, and the form I described here is related to pitch, to pitch processing. There are other forms of amusia related to rhythm. The reason I'm bringing that up is because we don't find any associated disorder to the pitch uh, form of amusia. But we do see an, uh, for, uh, differences for those who have a rhythmic problem. They do have a problem with dyslexia. They do have a problem with other kind of learning disorders. I mean, they seem to have it all. So if we study, I mean, I think that by studying those cases more, we will learn more about the association between the, the disorders than by studying the, ones I, the one I described. So Isabel, a couple more questions. I'll just throw them at you. What's the frequency of amusia in Western populations? I guess there's a question of how to diagnose it, but um, so the frequency is a, is a big question. And then there was one other that's attached to that. Let me see. Uh, here, why don't you ask that? Why don't you answer that while I'm looking? Yeah. I thought I mentioned it in my first slides. I'm sorry if it went too fast, but the prevalence is 1.5. But of course, it always depends on how you compute it. And this is true for any kind of disorder. So for amusia, I mean, it can go up to 4%. And it is, fortunately, we all use the same battery of evaluation or the same test so that we can compare from one country to another or from one lab to another. But if you are strict, like we were, and it was a very large base uh, uh, testing, online testing of more than 20,000 subjects, uh, participants, volunteers, we could determine that only 1.5% was affected, which is large, of course, uh, because we only selected those who were uh, impaired uh, by two standard deviations below the mean 
for the pitch-related test, we used two different tests. So we used converging evidence, and they had to uh, perform correctly on a third test of re related to rhythm. The reason we do require that, that there are attentional deficits, there are other kind of de deficits that are not really related to music, but, you know, problems to perform this kind of testing. So we eliminate those by using a control condition, if you like. And by doing that, we found 1.5%. Uh, That's a long explanation, but it's a very good question because it's important to know how we measure prevalence. Thank you. I think, uh, well, we have a lot of really interesting questions. I'm just trying to, um, maybe uh, Adam, Adam Alkelford could, could answer this, although I'm sure Isabel probably could too. So. So maybe Adam will, maybe Isabel will start, and then Adam. Um, why do people like music? What purpose does it serve? And there's an evolutionary question in there as well, right? Yeah. So, floor is open. Well, well, this is the typical question, huh? <laughs> and we cannot avoid it. So I'd like to know what you reply to those questions. I mean, I have heard that question for 30 years. What's the purpose of music? We don't know. And your speculation is as good as mine. Except that nowadays there are more and more uh, scientific uh, studies on the question. For many years, we, we, I mean, it's just a philosophical question. Or it depends on what you believe. And, uh, and of course... They were the, the kind of provocation uh, of um, Steven Pinker, who said, oh, music is like uh, auditory cheesecake. Pure pleasure for the ears, but it serves nothing. I mean, it's useless. So this provoked a lot of work, uh, activity in the labs, and we did too. But what is really compelling is that um, music... We don't really, really understand the, the relation with the pleasure, but this is a way to preserve you know, the bonding and the group activities. Music is one of the best cement to, um, to form a cohesive group. I presented in my first line to be born musical the fact that children who are uh, moved in synchrony with an adult will be more social. I mean, he will be more cooperative with that adult than with someone who didn't synchronize uh, at the same time. And there are lots of uh, uh, studies like this that are coming up now. Every, I wouldn't say every day, but uh, really uh, recently. It's, a, it's something that now we take very seriously in the lab and we try to answer. There is not much about the other idea that goes back to uh, Darwin, who said that music is really like the peacock tail, just to seduce um, the, the other gender. For now, as far as I know, maybe you know better, but... I have uh, oh, okay. <laughs> Go ahead. How many of you have a teenager? It keeps you from killing your teenager. <laughs> it's the only thing you can talk about with your teenagers sometimes is music. Anyway, that's a, sorry for that. I just couldn't help it <laughs> late in the afternoon. <laughs> the only thing I have in common with my 17-year-old. Yeah, but that's, that's bonding and social, too. Yes, exactly. uh -huh. No, I was talking about something else. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, just the fact that, you know, when, uh, when you play music, it's hard to fake. 
And so it's telling the other, the female, uh, that really your genes are maybe better than someone who cannot really play music. <laughs> that the idea. I mean, it's not stupid, uh, but it's hard to prove. I mean, uh, some people have uh, computed the number of offsprings of uh, very famous musicians, but you know, there is a confound. There is, okay, come Simon, please. Not many. I mean, Tim Falconer has none. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we can go back, but believe me, they don't have many offsprings. Um, do, you ha do you want to add something? Yeah, there's um, interesting work by Colwyn Trevathan on communicative musicality, which I think goes back to the early bonding between caregiver and, and babies. And it seems that being in synchrony with little vocalizations that infants make very early on is a critical part of that bonding process and seems to precede language as well. So it could be that music is a vital building block because the first way we communicate is not through words but through emoting through sound. And by mirroring that, we can begin to get a sense of what someone else feels, begins of empathy maybe. So it could be that both ontogenetically and maybe phylogenetically, music was a crucial part um, on the journey towards language. Um, stay up here, because I want to I want to explore that a little bit. It's a it's an interesting idea because when I think of uh, of social cognition, the first kind of a disruption in that scene in autism is this thing called joint attention that infants are developing, and um, so it, it's it's uh, almost paradoxical that uh, kind of these a lot of these savant abilities or autistic and even nonverbal autistic children might have very substantial um, musical abilities. And in fact, you can begin to teach people. And people with even acquired aphasias can do quite well if you begin to get them to sing you know, using their right hemisphere. So, um, so I wonder you know, if you could elaborate that connection a little bit for the neurologist in me. Um, yeah, I've just written a, a paper on is there such a thing as musical empathy as opposed to cognitive empathy and emotional empathy in everyday life. And I think there is. And I think autistic children I work with often have musical empathy, so we can interrelate, have humor, have teasing, have uh, sadness, have joy, and yet they can't empathize in everyday life. So I think that specifically in the context of music, there is that bonding, but it doesn't seem to transfer very easily. I think that's probably the yeah, thing. It's really fascinating because they do, you know... A lot, a lot of children will love to be hugged and show kind of, you know, some kind of, you know, those emotional relationships, but without the, without the norm, you know, the typical. That's really, it's interesting. Thank you. Um, okay, let's um, change a little bit. Direct, uh, let's go to uh, Dr. Miller. Um, in the case of Jack, what significance may lie in the yellow and purple as colors that are simultaneously intensifying as elements of visual perception? Yeah, so a great question, and thought a lot about it. And one of the most amazing things about the, the patients uh, who, who do this is their language and their thought is so disordered and impaired that they almost never can tell you uh, about this. But uh, I, I think... Um, our senses that with these diseases which are anterior, anterior temporal left or anterior inferior frontal left, that there is either release of circuitry that is posterior uh, or actually remodeling of posterior circuitry. 
Um, uh, we, we're, we're in the process of analyzing uh, all of, of our experience with these uh, patients since I've been at UCSF, which is about 18 years. And I do think there are certain colors that are thematically used more, and I think purple and yellow are, are, are two such colors. Uh, uh, but uh, I, I think we need statistics on this, yeah. Another, stay up here. Yeah. I've tried to organize to some success. In your talk, you have mentioned people with semantic, um, I think it's um, uh, dementia, uh, making a uh, mistake about colors of animals. Does this imply that language determines, um, that the thesis that language determines our information processing and categories? Yeah. I, I think yes. I mean, I, I think uh, we see really d- d- two sort of degenerative models for this. One is uh, when the left side of the brain degenerates, uh, we lose uh, lots of knowledge about things, uh, animals, uh, I think uh, vegetables, food. Um, when the right side degenerates, we lose knowledge about people and faces and the emotions. Uh, so very, very different sort of uh, uh, presentations. And, you, you know, I, I, I think uh, the anterior temporal lobe is a, a node, I think, for uh, verbal and semantic knowledge, the sort of knowledge that we start layering on as children. And, um, you know, I think this is the nidus of the degeneration and uh, semantic variant, and, and you do lose these language-based concepts. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. So from that perspective, then, the, if you lose the word frog, you've lost the concept of a frog in that way? Is that, you know, with that? I mean, in Alzheimer's, almost never. So in Alzheimer's, uh, often the, the anatomic uh, lesion for losing the ability to say the word frog is posterior temporal parietal. Uh, th- these uh, patients are very different. So, Alzheimer patient, frog. Oh yeah, frog. Uh, so it's on the tip of the tongue, um, and it's very late in the process that they lose the concept for a frog. But when the degeneration is uh, left anterior temporal lobe, uh, the loss of the concept of frog, what a frog is. Uh, these are people. If you give them an IQ test. Uh, the thing that they do worst on is general knowledge. So they are losing, you know, knowledge about uh, what Shakespeare wrote, uh, what a table is made of, uh, all of these facts that uh, are accumulated very early. Thank you. So here's a question uh, for Simon Fisher. Um, Are there people born with speech disability but who have normal, let's say, other verbal abilities, I'm assuming, Reading comprehension abilities, for example. Um, yes, <laughs> uh, there's a, there's a there's a there's a lot of different uh, types of speech and language disorders. Uh, many of them are, um, have high heritability. Uh, there are some speech problems that are uh, very predominantly just about uh, the uh, they're kind of dysarthric. So you can have a developmental dysarthria that means that actually you have problems physically making the right kind of sounds. Uh, in some cases, you can have a combination of uh, speech apraxia and dysarthria, although it's hard to pull those apart. Um, you can have uh, children who have... Uh, who are. Uh, there are many kids that we study who have uh, language impairments, uh, expressive, receptive kind of language impairments, but uh, they're, they're actually their speech... Uh, sequencing abilities are normal. 
Um, so there's a, there's a range of different profiles of different kids, um, and often it's quite messy. In the early days of, uh, of studying, uh, of looking for, for genes for, uh, involved in language disorders, people, there were some people who were really focusing on trying to find uh, a gene for grammar, for example, or find, finding um, specific lesions that might just take out one aspect of, of uh, language uh, function. Um, and I think most of that has proved uh, not to be true. So it's a kind of grey area between some kids have relatively uh, uh, profiles where um, certain aspects are more uh, impaired than others. Many kids have these kind of messy profiles, but speech problems can definitely be dissociated from, from linguistic problems as well. I don't know if that's fully answered the question. I've gone in a few different directions. But. Yeah, thanks. Um, let's stay up. Because you said you're not going to say anything political. <laughs> Thank you for this question of whoever sent this. Um, what would your diagnosis of the current temper, uh, POTUS be? Temporary POTUS, somebody said. Some have said malignant narcissism. <laughs> well, anyway, we'll move on from there. <laughs> actually, actually I, have to, I have to say we, we have a, um, a, a student in, in my lab who's a clinical a geneticist, so she's trained as a clinical geneticist and she studies all these different kids with different syndromes like the Williams syndrome, there's lots and lots of these different syndromes out there now um, and, uh, and uh, it's almost like for every uh, gene there might be a little mini syndrome associated with it when you get mutation uh, and she was going through some examples of different types of speech disorders that we were studying at the time and then she came up with a kind of test case this was just before the uh, American elections and she basically described this whole phenotype um, including the kind of mouth phenotype, things like that, for the, for, for the current protest, um, and the behavioural phenotype, and said, and can anyone say anything about the diagnosis of this person? So, um, yes. He doesn't have Williams syndrome. No, he, definitely not Williams syndrome, and not and not speech apraxia. <laughs> Thanks, Simon. So um, there was a question uh, for Geshwind or anyone, um, and so anyone will answer. Um, we have little difficulty discussing human variation at the individual level, but at the group level, things get dicey. Do we need to find a better approach to discussing group level differences? It's a really great question because they often get confused and confounded. And, of course, there's an enormous amount of human individual variability, and that's the point, is that you can't apply means, averages, groups to individuals, and that's where things kind of get, get off. I'll just leave it there. I mean, that's... Uh, I think it's a very good point, and I think it gets confounded, those two things. When somebody is speaking about individual differences, they're not speaking about the average. They're speaking about individuals, and when you apply an average to an individual, you're losing a lot, usually wrong. So uh, let's see, there, there are a couple more. Let's see, I think we have time. There are a couple more interesting questions for, uh, for Dr. McGaw. Um, get ready. Can an HSAM remember where he, she left his or her keys? No, as a matter of fact, that's one of their complaints. They lose their keys and can't find them. Uh, and uh, I, I, I tested a lot of them on, on their personal details. And uh, Jill Price uh, has never learned uh, the air license plate number on her car. And she walks past it every day when she goes to the uh, garage. 
So these kinds of um, incidental things are not picked up at all because that's not what they focus on. They, they focus on either uh, their lives and the events in their lives that they want to remember or don't, or even on imaginary uh, lives. Uh, some of them make up stories which um, they maintain. If I could just say briefly, one of our subjects um, invented a um, college basketball team in his head when he was 13 years old, and he has kept that as a college basketball team that in his imagination plays other real college basketball teams, and he does this on a regular basis, and he's done this since he's 13 years old. He's now 60 years old, and from time to time I get a news release that say how well they did in the NC2A tournament <laughs> and so on, and he spends an enormous amount of time doing this, and you might say, what, why does he do it? And one answer is because he can. That is, he has the ability, and we have tested him on his ability to remember all of the details. They live different kinds of lives from people who don't have the ability. And if they have had pleasant experiences in their life and they dwell on that, then they have one kind of a life. If they have had unpleasant experiences that they believe they should remember, that's another one. And if they have hobbies that require uh, a lot of this kind of memory, then they do very well with them. Thank you. I think we're kind of, most of the other questions are, rel are uh, kind of very similar. So Isabel had suggested maybe some of the speakers want to ask each other questions or there are other questions that people just want to ask. I, I don't know if that's too far out of, the, out of the realm of what we do. I know we're going to have a whole day of that tomorrow, but um, I'll repeat that. Yeah. Um, so Dr. Miller wanted to ask uh, Karen Berman about empathy and Williams syndrome. So the question is uh, about empathy, and are they more empathic than other children? Did I get that right? Okay. So um, empathy is uh, a, a broad concept. It's kind of one of these things that we kind of know it when we see it, but it can also be um, studied in the laboratory experimentally in the behavioral lab. For example, um, one of the... Uh, uh, very good papers was about uh, an, ex uh, an investigator who would sit with a child with Williams syndrome or other children and bang his or her knee. And how many, uh, what level of concern uh, does the child have for that? And it's, it's, it's quite significant uh, com in comparison to uh, typically developing children or children with various developmental disorders like Downs or, or others. So, so it's there and it can be measured experimentally. And we, we sort of do know it when we, we see it. If I show up with one, to one of my children with my cane, I get way more questions about it than I would from anyone else and uh, expressions of concern. It reminds me of the time when I was crossing a border somewhere and my youngest was about five years old and he saw all the guards asking us, querying us for minutes, each of the adults, and he came up and he said, are you going to ask me a hard math question? <laughs> Boys get worried about that. Anyway, I want to thank everybody for the, for the questions. Are there any more remaining questions? I think we have three minutes and... Um, it's really time for uh, 
for closing remarks. So I'm going to introduce Margaret Schoeninger, um, who is the Carter co-director, to give us some yeah, closing remarks. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. I just wanted to thank the audience, those people who stayed throughout the whole afternoon. Thank you very much. Um, I did want to particularly thank the symposium chairs. This was an amazing collection of speakers and really fascinating talks. The, you have already thanked the speakers, but I want to thank them again for coming here and uh, giving us really fascinating things to think about. I would also like to thank our supporters, um, our individual supporters who made this possible, including the Mathers Foundation. But there are others, individual supporters, some of whom really don't want us to give their names, so I won't. Um, but we do want them to know we very much appreciate it. And then also the questions that you all have asked, we, um, we very much it's, it's been a lot of fun to think about those things. I want to highlight, though, I want to point you in the direction of this isn't the end. We have many very interesting uh, symposia coming up. One is in September of next year, I mean this next fall, and that will be Cellular and Molecular Explorations of Anthropogeny, the Origin of Humans. In the winter of 2018, I'm particularly interested in this one, is the role of hunting in the origin of humans. Um, this will not be just the man, the hunter, re, re, re do, but we will be thinking about the role of hunting and um, uh, obtaining of a very high quality protein is the way I would look at it. In the spring of 2018, we're looking at imagination in human origins. Um, I had a conversation with someone during the break, and I said, how do you know what my dog imagines and what my dog doesn't imagine? So that's the kind of thing um, someone is going to tell us about. I think my dog has a great imagination, actually, when she's asleep. In the fall of 2018, we're going to look at the impact of tools and technology on the evolution of the human mind. And we can think about all kinds of different technologies. We talk about tools, and many of them are stone because they actually, uh, in the very early period, they're, those are the ones that are preserved. But we don't know exactly what other tools were there in the very beginning, and we can begin to see things that are not, that are ephemeral later, and that will not be preserved in a long-term fossil record. So please keep uh, notice of what we're doing, and we, um, and uh, yes, I'm sorry. Thank you, Rusty. <laughs> the, um, I want to talk about the future um, Kavli Institute uh, Symposia. Thank you. And December of 2017, we are going to have imaging the brain from molecules to circuits and beyond. So we'll take it from all levels in the brain. And I hope you realize that the drawing that you saw in the very beginning with the yellows and the purples is the human brain, but with gorgeous colors in it, very similar to the parrot, actually. When I saw the parrot, I thought of this uh, picture. Thank you, Jesse, for that picture. All right. Thank you very much, and we hope to see you in the future. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.